Good morning. So, friends, today is one of the most important Sundays in the entire year here at Covenant. It's Pledge Sunday. And I know that the cynics among you will say that, of course, you're going to say that, Thomas. You have a vested interest in today going well. And I'm going to admit from the beginning, you're absolutely right. I do. We pledge towards building our budget for next year. I do. I know that today is not a day that most of us sit there and go, oh my gosh, when we're planning our calendar out at the beginning of the year, when is Pledge Sunday taking place? And how do we circle that on the calendar? And how do we make sure the kids and grandkids all know that it's happening so we can gather together and go to brunch afterwards and get all dressed up? I know that historically this is going to be one of our lowest attended Sundays of the fall. I know that we don't take the same approach to it as we do to Easter and to Christmas Eve. I know. But I still believe that this is one of the most important Sundays of the entire year, every year. And the reason that I think we can struggle with this and kind of almost wish it was over, and it's like, yeah, look, we, got, I, we understand we got to pay the bills and everything else, and so let's just do this, and then let's move back to our spiritual stuff, is that we have found an ability in our world and in our culture to separate finances from spirituality. We don't see the two of them as connected. So it's like, here's the financial part. Let's get that over with so we can get on with church and focus on what church is supposed to be. I know that there are some first-time visitors here right now going, I cannot believe we chose today to come here. Like, I seriously cannot believe we chose today to come here. But friends, unfortunately, Jesus talks about the subject of money and finances and how we handle it more than any other subject in the Gospels. Because Jesus does not separate spirituality from finances and possessions. In fact, I think Jesus understands that how we handle our stuff what we have, what we've earned, what we've been given, is actually a reflection of our hearts. You can, we can sit there and be like, oh, I feel close to God, and I love God, and I feel that, and I got to go to Sunday school, and I have these things. But this is one of those Sundays where it's like, okay, do we want to put that into action, or are we just more comfortable talking about it and praying about it? How you handle your finances is every bit as much of a spiritual decision as whether you join a small group or not. It's every bit as much of a spiritual decision as whether you go to a Bible study or not. And so Jesus also, I think, understands it's a reflection of our heart. But secondly, he also understands that our finances and how we handle them actually can mold and shape the kind of people we are and the people we become. That if we trust God with our finances enough to live with the extravagant generosity that we've been called to, that actually shapes our hearts. We actually kind of change as people as we share and become more generous and trust God that as we give, God will keep providing more. On the other hand, if we choose with our possessions to go, no, this is mine, and I'm going to hold on to this tight-fisted, and I'm going to make sure that I've earned this, and that it's mine to do with what I want, that too shapes the kind of people we are and the kind of people we become. Shapes the kind of families we become. This is an inherently spiritual decision. This is not fundraising for an institution, right? When we come forward in a few minutes to give our pledges for next year, there's not going to be a poster board that's going to come up with a little thermometer, and we're going to keep, you know, with a red marker, filling it in until it gets to the top. If we don't reach our goal, we're not going to send everybody around again for a second time. It's like, come on, everybody do it again. We have a matching gift. We have two hours to meet it, right? We're not doing any of that. This is about the decision that exists in our hearts, 
of how we want to live and what narrative we want to believe about life, about faith. To get into this, we're going to look at Mark chapter 8 as the passage we're going to be studying today. And the question that we're asking today comes from a question that Jesus asks his disciples. Questions are guiding the series we're in right now. We're looking at questions because we believe questions are a good thing. They help us to get deeper. They cause us to investigate and learn more about what we believe. And the question today comes from uh, Mark chapter 8 starting in verse 31. This is what it says. It says, He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that in this question you would meet us all here today and guide us and teach us about your good news, your gospel for living. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. So the question guiding us today is this last one. What, is it, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And to get into this uh, and what it means for us, I actually want to look at some current events that have taken place in our world and in our nation this week. And uh, this is a week when we've had a lot of things we could focus on in current events. We have seen um, some tough news on one scale. Uh, it was a tough loss last night. I know that it was a tough loss. I'll be honest with you. I was pulling for a last-minute victory for the Horns because I felt like it would reflect well on Pledge Sunday, people coming in in a good mood and everything. Uh, uh, I want you to put your, your mind on spiritual matters when it comes to pledging today. You're going to be okay. It could be worse. You could be a Georgia Tech fan, right? It gets far worse than where y'all are doing well. We're doing well. We're going to be all right. It's going to be okay, okay? Um, it could go with some kind of strange news. I'll be honest with you. This was a strange week for me of the mass frenzy that descended on Austin, Texas at the boil water notice, right? I did a whole like, like deep dive into the state of humanity by going to HEB on Monday when they announced this thing and people literally in this frenzy about needing to find water, like eight ounce bottles of, you know, thir eight 32 ounce bottles of water is somehow going to get you through any period here. But people were like in just genuine panic mode. And I mean, I said to a few people in the stores, like, guys, it's not that we're running out of this. You just got to boil it. Like, we're going to be all right. Like, everybody here, just take a breath. But you could see this, like, mass thing going on. And people, all right, what are we going to do without the water, right? And it's like, oh, my gosh, people, just easy here. Easy. We saw some really tragic news against this week that we have seen far too much of. Of bigotry. and of mass violence in Pittsburgh through our mail systems that continues to plague our land and in which we as people of faith must ask and continue to ask some very pointed questions of what this means for us. All of those are important. 
Actually, the first two aren't very important. The last one is. But none of those are what we're going to look at through this lens today. The current event that I want to talk about that took place in the news this week, although it feels like 10 years ago, was that there was one of the largest lottery drawings in history this week. The Mega Millions, $1.6 billion that was up for grabs, and people in states participating around the country, including Texas, were going nuts this week, not just about boiling water and plastic bottles of water, but about getting a Mega Millions lottery ticket. I want you to hear, again, what was at stake, $1.6 billion, that's with a B, lots of zeros behind it. On the morning of the drawing, I watched an interview that a reporter did. He was standing outside of a convenience store, and as people were coming out of the store, he was like going up to him, he's like, did you buy Mega Million lottery tickets? And people were like, yes, you know, I did. And he's like, why did you buy a million, uh, Mega Millions lottery ticket? And you could see the people like, well, you know, my great aunt is sick and stuff like that. And you're like, okay, uh, <laughs> maybe she is, and I'm sorry about that, and you know, this can help. The best part was this one lady came walking out. It was like a golden moment in an interview that reporters wait for. And he goes up to her and he's like, ma'am, did, uh, did you buy a Mega Millions lottery ticket? And she looked at him with this face like he was from Mars. And she's like, yeah, that's why everybody's here this morning, <laughs> buying the Mega Million lottery ticket. And he goes, well, now, what, what is the reason that you've come here to purchase the Mega Million lottery ticket? She goes, reason? I have 1.6 billion reasons why I came here today. <laughs> she goes, did you understand what I just said? $1.6 billion. She's looking at him like, just, she goes, you can, one, did you hear what I said? $1.6 billion. She goes, do you know what you can buy with $1.6 billion? You can buy anything you want to buy. Anything you want to buy, you can get. You can do anything you want to do. You don't have to work again. Anything you want to buy. Anything you want to do. You can do anything. Anything. <laughs> She goes, if I win it, first thing I'm doing is buying an island in the Pacific. <laughs> and I was like, man, I appreciate that honesty. This is what my great aunt needs. This is like, I'm getting an island in the Pacific. I don't know about any of the rest of you. That's what I'm doing. What this interview showed, and indeed what it shows the frenzy for all people that were going out and getting this, is, is this idea. And it's a narrative that I want us to think about today. Because it's a narrative that when you say it, it sounds weird, but it's a narrative that is true and it dictates so much of our life as individuals, so many of our goals and expectations, and so much of what we do as a culture. And that is this. The narrative that this reinforces is, the more I can get of what I like, the better off my life is going to be. The more I can get of what I like, the better off my life is going to be. Now, to be clear, the winner, which there was one winner, whose life is very different today than a week ago, was in Simpsonville, South Carolina. If you happen to be traveling in Simpsonville, South Carolina this week for work or pleasure in Simpsonville and you won, we very much look forward to getting your pledge card today. <laughs> the more and more of what I can get, the better off life would become. For somebody, it's an island in the Pacific. The idea is life with an island in the Pacific is better off without life with an island in the Pacific. What would it be for you? All of us have stuff we value. Maybe for you it's things. Again, we don't like to say that out loud. We know we're in church and we're not supposed to. But for some of us it is. We might buy new clothes because having nicer clothes is better than not. 
We might buy new cars because having nicer cars, especially lots of nicer cars, is better than not. We might buy a different house with newer appliances and a different zip code because having that house makes us happier and life's better than if I don't have it. It's a narrative that is very real and dictates a lot of our decisions. Or maybe you're not a stuff person. Maybe you're an experience person. Oh, I don't want to clutter my life with stuff, but we can have more experiences this way. $1.6 billion, wouldn't have to work again. We could just like take vacations all the time. We could go to that resort that my sister and her family went to that they could afford that we couldn't, and then we could go have that experience better because if we had that experience of more vacation and more travel, life is better. We are happier. Things are better. The more access I have to what I want, the better off life becomes. And is that having an impact as, as mass media is fueling this in many different ways? Absolutely it is. The Atlantic Magazine published a study recently that looked at the impact that this thinking has on our behavior. And what they found is, is that we are giving away less and less and less because we're keeping more for ourselves. They found is, is that as much as 40% of American households do not give anything away at any point during the year. And what they found is, is that they looked at giving in 2016 versus decade before and two decades before, and they found is people are giving away a smaller percentage of what they make than 10 years before and 20 years before because they want more to do what they want to do, to take the trips they want to take, to buy the stuff they want to buy, to do all the things they want to do so life is happier. We're better off. We're keeping more for ourselves. And so the natural evolution of that must mean that because we're keeping more for ourselves to do whatever it is that we want to do, we must be happier as people, right? We must be happier than we were 10 years ago. We must be more content than 20 years ago because we're keeping more for ourselves to do with whatever it is we want, right? I mean, the happiest individual in the world today lives in Simpsonville, South Carolina, because they can do anything, anything. And narrative is subtle but it drives human behavior. And into that narrative, this morning we're introduced to a counter-narrative. A counter-narrative that's expressed in Mark chapter 8, a counter-narrative that's given to us by Jesus, who says that the Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve, that the Messiah, that the Savior, the one who is all-powerful, didn't come in saying, this is what I have, what can I get? What experience can I consume? What thing can I do to make myself more fulfilled? But that the Messiah came into the world seeking to ask what he was called to give rather than receive. A whole different narrative, an entirely different way of looking at things. And what Jesus is saying is, is that in this final question, we have to challenge the narrative of our culture of the more I can get, the better I am, the happier I am. He says it is possible to gain the whole world and to actually lose your life. That there is not a corollary between the more and more I have and the happier and happier I become. A counter-narrative to that. And the counter-narrative, he says, begins not with what I get, but what I am called to give. What the Bible calls the first fruits, our tithes, our offerings. This is why we ask you to do this before the year begins. We start with this process of what are we called to give. Now, and I want to be abundantly clear about this. When we talk about this, none of this is intended to be a spiritual guilt trip. And it can easily turn into that. Right? None of this is, turned, is, is meant to be a spiritual guilt trip. There is nothing wrong with buying clothes. There is nothing wrong with going on trips. There is nothing wrong with desiring experiences. I love going on vacation. I love traveling. I don't feel guilty about that. 
This is not about making you feel guilty about things. What this is, is inviting you to consider the narrative by which you live and make decisions. It's the first thing that happens when we look at our budget, what all can we do and consume and receive, or is the first thing we look at, what are we called to give, and then how are we called to use the rest of it after that? It's not good, giving doesn't happen after we've done everything we want to do, and then at the end we're like, well, I'll give this. We start with the call to give. And it's not like we're asking you to take a vow of poverty here, right? Tithing, which is more ambitious than most people in our country think, there's still 90% of it you get to do with as you feel led. This is not like, oh, this horrible, it's not that. It's a narrative of the kind of life you and I choose to live. And God is saying abundance doesn't come through, this is what I get, but life first begins with what I'm called to give. Now, Is that true? Or did Jesus throw these verses into the Bible so it's like, this is what pastors can use in the future to like get people to give? There's like these ones scattered around that we sort of pull up on these Sundays. Well, let's look at that. Is, it, is, the, is, the, is the counter-narrative Jesus offers really the way to abundance or not? And let's use science for this. First off, let's look at the idea that if I can just get more and more of what I want, my life becomes better. And the way that we're gonna look at this is by asking people who should be the happiest, are they really happy? And the people we're going to look at are folks who win the lottery, people who win the Mega Millions. The person who just won the Mega Millions in, in Simpsonville, South Carolina, with $1.6 billion now. You can buy a lot of real estate in upstate South Carolina. The research we want to look at is a quote, summed up in a quote. It's not a Christian quote. It's not Thomas's thinking on stuff. It's a quote that comes from Fortune Magazine. And this is what Fortune Magazine wrote about lottery winners just very recently, it says this. It said, the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards says over a third of lottery winners declare bankruptcy, meaning they were worse off than before they became rich. Other studies show that lottery winners frequently become estranged from family and friends and incur a greater incidence of depression, drug and alcohol abuse, divorce, and suicide than the average American. No wonder financial planners joke that if you have enemies, give them a winning lottery ticket. Now, what that's not supposed to say is by winning the lottery, you're automatically going to have this awful life. But what it's saying is, is if you're looking for this because I'm going to have this amazing life where I can do anything I want, what you're going to become is someone very wealthy who realizes you have no idea where the meaning of life is found. It's not about the narrative of what we get. It's the narrative of what are we called to give. And what we're seeing here is when Jesus asks the question, is it possible to gain the whole world, even $1.6 billion, and lose your life? The answer, according to studies, is absolutely yes. It is possible to do that. So then what about the counter-narrative? What about the one that Jesus offers and says, well, no, the way towards abundance first asks, what am I called to give and contribute versus consume and receive? Look at science again. Time Magazine very recently posted uh, an article on a massive study that was done out of the University of Zurich in Switzerland, and it asked the question, what makes people happy? What makes individuals happy? And what they found is sort of surprised them. They said the first thing they saw is that there was this direct corollary always between people's happiness over time and how generous they were with their possessions, with their money, and with their time. Did they volunteer? So they decided to study that even more individually and closely. And what they did is they took a large number of people and they gave all of them $100, which sounds like a great study to participate in, right? To half of the people that received $100, they said, now with this $100, today you can do anything you want to do. Go enjoy your day. 
go be happy and, and just do what you want to do. They said with the other half, they said, you have to spend this money today, but you cannot spend it on yourself. Rather, you need to purchase a gift for someone you care about. And then throughout the day, as these two groups went off to use the $100, they had scientists that they checked in with every once in a while, and there was, and I don't know how this works, some of you are smarter than me, but they actually kind of hooked up some, some probes to uh, their brain just in the middle of the day and studied real quickly the parts of their brains that were stimulated. And apparently there's a part of our brain that when we are truly happy and content, there is a part of it that is stimulated. And they were looking for what parts of the brain are stimulated as these people go through the day. Not what do they say they feel, but what parts are stimulated. And what they found is an overwhelming number of cases, the people whose, the, whose parts of their brains were happier and more content were the ones who were spending the day figuring out how to give the $100 away as a gift than figuring out what they wanted to do with it that was going to make them happy. This is what I love about today. Because today is not that moment where we're like, okay, I'm going to think about that for a while. I'm going to feel that for a while. Today's the day we get to do something. Or not. And then ask ourselves a really hard question, why not? But this is an invitation to abundance. I want to close with a story that, to me, sort of wraps pieces of this together, of the opportunity that's before us today. And it's about one last event that's taking place in our country uh, this week, and it is a phenomenon known as the World Series. Some of you might be watching this, the Los Angeles Dodgers against the Boston Red Sox. Um, the Red Sox look like they're going to win. They're up three games to, to one. Uh, one of our pastors here at Covenant, not named John or Thomas, uh, Jill is a big Dodgers fan. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and Jesus apparently is not calling for the Dodgers this year. It looks like the Red Sox are, are going to win. Not that Jill's going to be teased about that at all, but it's just something I feel like it's important to point out. Anyway, the Boston Red Sox have the highest payroll in all of baseball. In their entire organization this year, of the 30 teams in baseball, they are spending more than anyone else. They're spending over $230 million as a club this year on this year's club and organization more than any other franchise. But the one place that they are saving money was with their rookie manager, Alex Cora. Now, I'm not here today to tell you that if you love Jesus, you have to be a Boston Red Sox fan. But I am here today to tell you that as followers of Jesus, we can be grateful for the manager of the Red Sox, Alex Cora. So I understand it, he is a person of faith. And he was a surprise choice to be the manager of the Red Sox, one of the most historic, wealthiest clubs in all of baseball. Up until last year, they had, as you would expect, with the highest club, with one of the wealthiest clubs and most historic clubs, they had one of the highest paid managers in all of baseball, but they felt like he was underperforming. So they fired him, and they hired this rookie manager who had never been a manager at any level before, Alex Cora, who had spent one year as a coach, the coach last year, the bench coach of the Houston Astros, and they offered him the managerial position. Now, Alex Cora was, uh, is from Puerto Rico. He is a uh, former player. He played somebody. He was one of those fringe players for most of his career, kind of played in the major some and the minor some, was never a superstar. But when the Red Sox offered him a contract, they, he was surprised and those around him were surprised at the lowball offer he received. In fact, the salary that he was offered made him the, one of the four lowest paid managers in all of baseball, for the wealthiest club in all of baseball. The people that he knew, his family and his friends and his agents who found out about this while he was considering the offer, said to him, this is an insult. This is an absolute insult to you. And you should either turn it down or negotiate something much higher when you go and meet with them tomorrow. Or walk away from it. This is an insult. 
The Red Sox knew they had lowballed the offer. They said that they were prepared of how much to increase the offer when they went into a negotiation, but they're like, this is how negotiations work. We give one offer, then they sort of say what they want, and we go back and forth. They had a bottom line number they were willing to raise his salary to. Alex Cora walked into the meeting with the Red Sox ownership and said to them, I'm honored that you would consider me for this job, and I'm honored to have received this offer. I have one condition, and one condition only. If he had asked for his salary to be doubled, he would still have been one of the, in the lower half of managerial salaries. If he had asked for his salary to be tripled, he would have been making less than half of what the top manager makes. This was a low ball offer on the stage he was playing on. He said, there's one thing. And if you agree to this one thing, I will sign the contract in front of me. What I am asking for is for the Boston Red Sox organization to rent the largest cargo plane that exists and to pay to have it filled with humanitarian goods of water and food and medical resources and that in a few weeks I will lead a contingent of volunteers and doctors from this organization to go to Puerto Rico, to go to my hometown which has just been devastated by Hurricane Irma and to spend a week doing humanitarian relief. The ownership of the Red Sox said that they had no idea how to respond, and the owner said, okay, we agree, and they signed the contract. He said, the owner said he walked out of the meeting going, I don't even know what that cost. I have no idea what I just agreed to. I have no idea what I, a, a negotiate, I was ready for everything in a negotiation. The negotiation was him trying to get more for himself and his family. That's what a negotiation is. And he flipped it on its head to say, what could we use this as an opportunity to give? When Alex Cora was asked about it afterwards, they said to him, as this season's going on, and the Red Sox are having a historically great season, they're like, man, you are in line for a major pay raise. Are you ready for that next negotiation? And what he responded is by saying, maybe. But the one thing I'm going to ask for in the negotiations this time is that one plane's not enough. They need to give two. He said, the week we spent down in Puerto Rico is one of the greatest weeks of my life. He didn't do it as charity work, even. He did it because it helped others, yeah. But it also did something within him. This is the counter-narrative Jesus is asking us to believe in today. And this is the call that's before us all, all of us today. The question is, how do we respond? Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would give us the faith to believe that this gospel is true, that there is a way of living that is freedom, freedom from clinched fists and keeping everything for ourselves, and the ability to say that we are called to give, to trust, to emulate, to follow Jesus who gave himself away, and to not pin our hopes on things that cannot give us what we truly desire. May we place our faith into action in some kind of small way. May we stretch, maybe for the first time, maybe more than in the fact, may we stretch as an expression of faith and trust and believing. May we follow your call here at Covenant this day, but well beyond in the city of Austin and in this world. We pray for a spiritual sense of your call on our finances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.